So, so as we get started, kind of relax for a moment. Turn to someone and say good morning to them, if you don't mind. It's going to be hard. Maybe you have to yell across the room, you know. But uh, say good morning to someone around you. And uh, I want to ask you a question. How are you guys doing? How are you doing this morning? How, how are you? Yes? No? Good? Blessed? We're okay? Can I, can I make a promise to you? Here's the promise. Okay, you ready? The promise is this that you're going to leave here today better than you came. You say, Mark, uh, that's a huge promise because I'm doing really well right now. And those of you that are joining us from church uh, at home, that, you know, that's a huge thing. So when I say those two words, I promise, well, that causes a lot of different feelings in our life. It really does. And, and what I realize when I hear those words, how I feel really depends on who says them. Is what it is. And, and, and because what I realize is that if it's someone that I depend upon, someone that I've known for a long amount of time, then, hey, then it means one thing to me, those two words I promise. But then if it's someone that maybe I have not known very long or yet, you know, I have some questions about, then the terms, term I promise, well, it means another thing to me. Yes. But when it's someone that has been faithful, when it's someone that has been faithful in my relationship again and again over the years, then, hey, it means something very different to me when I say or hear the words I promise. You see, what makes the difference in that phrase is faithfulness. It is exactly what makes the difference in the phrase I promise. Faithfulness makes the difference. How I feel when I hear those words I promise. Grab your Bibles this morning, the book of Romans again, as we continue in our series teaching through the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3 starting with verse 1. Now, let me tell you what Romans is, and we say this a lot, but I want you to I'll go, go over this again real quickly. Romans is a letter uh, in its entirety, one letter. Paul is writing to a group in Rome he has never met before, and so it is a letter about Christian living. It's how we take our faith and how we take the things that you and I know, how we take the things that we hear here on campus and take those things that we hear when we're sitting in our living room at church at home, how we take those things into our life, into our heart, and we live them out. So it is a great manual for you and I to live out life. So Romans chapter 3 verse 1 says this, then what advantage has the Jew? And we'll get back to the promise thing in a moment. But what advantage has the Jew? And you say, well, they have no advantage because we've learned already through Scripture, Romans, that God shows no partiality. So here's what he says. He goes on to say this. Or what is the value of circumcision? So rest assured that the sermon this morning is not on surgery. So don't get crazy about this, right? So it's not on that at all. But yet this promise that he's talking about, how do you connect these two these questions, then what advantage has the Jew? And so here's what Paul says, much in every way. You think, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought God is no respecter of person, but yet he said they have an advantage, much in every way. And then he goes on to explain what he's saying. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So what is the advantage? I think that's a huge question, a place for you and I to start in our study this morning. What's the advantage? And according to Paul, there is an advantage for the Jew. But it's not a question, it's not a question of value. And I think that that's where we have to start. It's not a question of value, but yet it's a question of possession. It's what it is, which eventually should lead to obedience. That God has entrusted the Jewish people with the oracles of God, he said. What is that oracles of God when he says that? Well, it's that of the word of God is what it is. So what does this have to do with promise? Everything. Because the oracles of God, the word of God, that Paul is talking about entrusted to the Jews, 
is that it is referring to the Old Testament, the promise and the law. It begins way back in the book of Genesis, chapter 3. God shows up after the fall of mankind and he makes a promise. He makes this promise that at some point in the future that God would send someone that would fix the brokenness of humankind. Is what he said. And then when you move a little further on, which we're going to talk about today from Genesis chapter 12, that we find this man by the name of Abram, who later becomes Abraham. And through him, God raises up a people, a nation Israel. And from that nation, God brings a savior to simply heal the brokenness of all of mankind through Israel. It's a promise. And so for thousands of years throughout the Old Testament, God reveals himself and reveals this promise through the Jewish people to redeem all of mankind. It's a promise. And in that promise, God also gives us a law we find in the Old Testament, a law that brings us to him, a law that was always given in order for us to see our great need for God within our lives. It's a law that draws us to him. It was never given as a strategy to the Jewish people, never given as a strategy to simply cause them to no longer see a need within their lives, but it was always given to them as a tool to bring them to God, to see their great need for God. It was never designed for them to earn a place with God, but yet realize how much they need God. It's pointing them to the promise of a redeemer through that of their great need in life. That's the promise. That is the promise. And if there's an advantage to that of the Jew, then they know the promise before the Gentile is exactly what he's saying, that they know the promise before the Gentile. So as we take that, we take that, that what you and I know, we lay that over my life, I, we lay that over your life, then what does this all have to do with you and I? What does this have to do? Because understand this, that when we were given the promise in the law, it was never just for possession only. And that's the, what we have to deal with today. Never just for possession only, but it's always about obedience in our heart, that we are obedient through that of love and not fear to God. So it was given to you and I for action within our lives. How does that apply to us? Does what we know about God, do the things that you know about God, do they push you to God? Or are they just something that you basically have within your life? Is it about living it or is it about having it? Is it about obedience or is it about position within your life? What are you doing with the things that you hear about God? Just if the only time that you ever hear those things are these moments here on campus or at church at home. If those are the only moments that you hear these things about God, then, then what are you doing with what you hear? I think that's a huge question. Because when we take this template of that question, place it over our lives, what we're going to find is that all the edges, they don't match up. They don't match up for me, for you. We failed the test last week. We gave a test, you know, and we all failed the test miserably last week, realizing our great need for God. It places us in the greatest position that we would ever be in our life because what we need to come to God today is need itself. That is what drives us to him. So what do we do with all of this? Well, Paul, in the next couple of verses, he's going to address a huge question in our lives. A question that maybe you have never phrased it this way in these exact words. But I think it's a question that we've all felt within our hearts. And so here's what he says in Romans chapter 3, this time verse 3. 
says, what if some were unfaithful? Now, let me tell you, that's a question that we can answer because we all failed the test last week. So we know that there's no doubt that we are unfaithful to God at times in our lives. If we took a, a, a survey this morning, then we would realize that we're all unfaithful at God at some point in our life. So he starts with the question, what if some were unfaithful? We know that we are. We know how that applies to the Jews. So does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? And that's the big question, I think. That we have. Does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? And so what Paul does, he answers that in verse 4. He says, hey, by no means. And then he goes further. He says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So here's my thought. The second question for us this morning is this. Does my faithfulness or does my unfaithfulness diminish God's faithfulness. Does my unfaithfulness diminish God's faithfulness? Because we, we've already uh, basically said that faithfulness is the foundation of promise. When somebody makes a promise to you that you know are faithful to you in life, or it means something very different than someone that's just maybe a stranger or someone that has been unfaithful to you in the past, so does my unfaithfulness diminish God's faithfulness? And what I realize is this. We're all victims of broken promises. Every one of us in this room. Yes. So let's just ask the question. How many of you have ever had something promised to you and that promise was broken? Raise your hand. Let me see your hand. Come on, don't be shy. Raise your hand. If it's a person next to you, give them a nudge, you know, like reminder. They promised to do something for you and they have yet to do it. So we're all victims some, in some way or another of broken promises within our lives. The difference that I find here when I ask these questions about my unfaithfulness and does that diminish God's faithfulness in my life? Well, if I look at that in a very human way, what I realize is this, that God would be justified. God would be justified in his actions if he were unfaithful to me at times because I have been so unfaithful to him. If I look at that in a very human way, then I would justify it in saying, yeah, God probably has the right very much to be unfaithful to me at times because of my great unfaithfulness to him. Because in the world in which we live, in the way that you and I operate, what I realize is that we make promises with conditions of reciprocated faithfulness. We make promises with conditions of reciprocated faithfulness. Now, if you're married and in the room, or if you're thinking about getting married, or if you're thinking about marrying the person sitting next to you this morning, or if your thoughts never come to your mind, and now all of a sudden I planted that thought in your mind, you think that's not a bad thought, okay? But but what if you wrote your vows? You know, when I, I've done a lot of weddings over the years, many weddings, and some some couples love to write their own vows, and I always say, hey, listen, before we get to that wonderful day, could you kind of just email them to them? To me and let me read them first. You know, I kind of want to read over them to make sure that, boy, they they are kind of, you know, they're they're within line, I think, in what should be said, not changing them, but make sure nothing's crazy in there. Suppose, suppose that you wrote your own vows and you said to your future spouse before you pronounced husband and wife, suppose you said to them, listen, I promise to always, absolutely always be faithful to you, even when you are unfaithful to me. Oh, the room would get quiet, would it not? Absolutely, it would get quiet. We simply, we pledge our faithfulness in sickness and in health. 
We do. For richer, for poorer. Isn't that right? Yes, we say those kinds of things. We do. But yet, when we live in a world, what we realize is that we pledge or we promise on those conditions of reciprocated faithfulness. Yeah. It's the way we raise families. It's the way we deal with children. You know? Dad gets up and he, he gets all, of, all the kids together and says, okay, here's the thing I want you guys to do. Here's what I want you to do at the house. I want you to take out the trash. And I want you to take out the trash out of the kitchen. I want you to put it in the trash cart outside the receptacle. And then I want you to roll that cart out to the curb so that when the sanitation department comes by, they can pick up the trash today. And I want you to do all of that before I return home from work. And if you do that, I'm going to promise you that I'm going to take you this afternoon to get some shaved ice. Now, I didn't realize this just coming into this uh, understanding of my own and from a conversation today that there are now, there is, there is snow cones and there is shaved ice. Are you aware of that, right? Yes, that shaved ice is gourmet snow cones. And, and, and that's a big deal, right? And, and they're laughing the whole time because they're serving you like what? Frozen water with some syrup on it and they're charging you a lot of money for that, Right? Yes. And so, so dad says, hey, if you do this and want to get home, I'm going to take you to shaved ice. Dad returns home that afternoon. What is the first thing he notices? There's no trash cart by the curb. He walks in the house and there's trash all over the kitchen. So what happens to his promise? What happens to his promise? Okay, here's the thing. How many of you in the room would still take him for shaved ice? Anybody in the room? Uh... <laughs> How many of you would say, absolutely not, go to bed without dinner? Anybody here? Yes, right? Yes, yes. That's cruel. Do you realize that, right? You can't do that. You got to feed your kids, but you cannot take them to shaved ice. So what if you said to them, hey, listen, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take you to shaved ice, and I'm going to go ahead and do this because this is going to give you an incentive so that you will obey me next time. No, that's not the way we operate. That is not the way we operate. And what I realize about me, you, and this being level ground, as we talked about so many times before, that we've all failed the test. We've all failed to take out the trash. And it's not out of ignorance. It's not, but it's out of active disobedience in our lives. You know, verse 11 in a moment, we find that it says that no one seeks God, that we, were, we are voluntarily unfaithful, that we have the oracles of God. Man, we know to trust God. We know the things that God has promised us. We know all of those things within our lives And yet when you look at this, you think God really has the right to step out of the fray of my life at times and let me kind of coast on my own in this world because of my great unfaithfulness. And what I realize is this, it's not that I doubt God. It's not not that I doubt that God has the ability to remain faithful in my life. But when I look at my unfaithfulness compared to his faithfulness, what what I struggle with is God's willingness to do that because I've been so unfaithful to him in life. And, and when I think about that, I, I, I always put myself, if I were God, I don't know if you've ever played that game, right? If I were God, if I were God, would I continue to be faithful to people that are unfaithful to me? And, and you know, you can fill in the blank on that one, right? And I think what we do sometimes in our life is we see all of this as a point system within our life and, and with God and his faithfulness and our unfaithfulness. And so we say, oh man, I told a lie today. A, a lie is five points. I don't know if you know that or not, right? But a lie is five points. And so what that means is this, that so I lose five 
five points of faithfulness from God. And well, that's fair. You know, if I tell a lie, it's a five point lie. So then I lose five points of uh, faithfulness to God in my life. So God backs away from me for five points worth of time or present. So what do I do? I have to make up those five points with God by doing five points of good deeds. It's called restoration is what it's called. And, and, and I want to tell you, if you're trying to simply go back and fix everything that you've ever done wrong in life, then it's going to be a super struggle to you and it's actually going to be destructive within your life. So the five points, so, you know, hey, I can deal with that. But what about when you come to the hundred point sin? What, do you, what, what, what about when you come to that point? And all of a sudden, when you come to the hundred point sin, you're drowning. You can't keep your head above water. You see no hope. You can't make up all those things with God. You can't do that. And at some point you give up. And Paul says this to you and I, that regardless of what we do and regardless of how many times we've done those things in our life, regardless of our unfaithfulness to God today, what I realize is this, that it's impossible to nullify or render powerless or erase. It's impossible to overburden God's faithfulness in our lives. It is impossible to do that. And I love the book of Genesis because what we find in the book of Genesis, we find that of the beginning of sin and the end of sin. You said, but Mark, wait a minute. I thought that that took place in the Gospels. No, absolutely not. It takes place way back, way before the Gospels in the book of Genesis. I love that because what it does, it starts with a promise and it starts with a sinner by the name of Abraham. It's Genesis chapter 12. Verse one, if you've been here very long, you know, I love Genesis. I was so excited when just God just directed me to this text this morning. But it's Genesis 12, verse one. Now the Lord said to Abram, later becomes Abraham, go from your country and from your kindred, kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. This is the promise. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And I underline this last part. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the blessing. This is the promise that from this people, because of God's great faithfulness, not Abraham's faithfulness, but for God, that he would bring a savior to redeem all of humankind. Yes, it's a promise forged in that of the faithfulness of God, not Abraham. This is a promise first to the Jew, and we know that Paul uses those words through Romans a lot. And, and that means that they have the possession of that promise first because they have been given the oracles of God before the Gentiles. But ultimately, it's a promise to the Gentiles. Ultimately, it's a promise to all the human race, to you and I this morning. But it starts with a promise and a sinner named Abraham. And so all Abraham has is a promise. He has a promise of a new land and a great nation but yet he is childless, him and Sarah. It's amazing, and I'm excited to share this with you. He has this word from God. He has God saying, hey, Abraham, I'm going to take you. You're childish, but I'm going to make you a father of a great nation. I'm going to do that. I'm going to bless all the nations in the world from you and from this nation. And then after this amazing moment with God, then life hits him square in the face. And, and I want to tell you, that we have those moments with God, don't we? We have those moments where they were sitting here in this building or we have those moments where you're sitting at church at home in your living room or wherever you are listening from today. And we have those moments where we hear God speak to us, whether it's you know through the scriptures or through worship or through nature. Uh, we have God speak to us 
And we have that moment where God in us, we can take on the world. You know, God, just let it come. God, just let the enemy come against me because you and I, we have this. We have that maybe on a Sunday morning when we come together. And then Monday happens and life takes its best shot at you. And that happens to us. That we leave here feeling, man, better than what we came, the promise, right? And then all of a sudden Monday comes and life takes its very best shot in your life. That Abram hears this from God. He trusts God enough that just from this conversation with God, he trusts God and his faithfulness enough to pack up his family, to move them to a new land. He packs up all of them. He takes Lot with him. Should have left Lot at home because Lot becomes a lot of trouble later on in his life. But he moves that and he simply trusts God in this promise. But what happens is this. He goes to the land that God had promised him. He goes to Bethel. And when he arrives at Bethel, they set up their tents at the campground. And all of a sudden, unbeknownst to them, that Bethel is locked in the grips of a great famine. Life hits you right in the face at times. You've heard from God. Man, you have this this promise from God. You're believing in God's faithfulness. And all of a sudden you find yourself in the land that God promised you. And it's a famine. How do you go from Sunday hearing God's voice to Monday famine? How do you do that? How do you go from Sunday hearing the voice of God to Monday famine? Yes. Where is God in his faithfulness in all of this? I trusted you enough to move my family but you bring me to a land of famine. And I think there's two ways that we approach this. I think there's two ways that you and I think about this. I think the first way that we think about this in, in, in this thing of going from that Sunday hearing God's voice to that Monday famine is this, that this must be God's will. And that's a real spiritual way to look at it, right? This must be God's will. I'm going to stay where I am. God's greater than the famine in the land. And so God is going to provide for me. And so we're just going to stay here and we'll get a little hungry, but God will always provide for us. And that's a great way to look at it. But that that is not always the way that you and I look at it. I think what we look at this, how we look at this many times is that, this, is ha- this has to be a result of something I've done wrong. And I love scripture because it's given to us with the opportunity to read with some imagination. And I think we look at this many times when we find ourselves in that place and we say it must be a result of something I've done wrong that God is not faithful to me. And so we say, God, I've been hanging on to your promise. And man, God, here I am in Bethel where you led me, but there's a famine. So there must be something that I've done to diminish your faithfulness within my life. Can I give you a little sidebar? I thought about this as I read this story again, as I've read many times. And that is that, can I tell you that many times God will lead us into a land of famine so that he can prepare us for the land of milk and honey? Right, right. He does that. He does that. To grow us and to strengthen us. Not that he is a cruel God, but yet he is the perfect father in our lives. So what do I do in those moments in my life? What do I do when I have this promise? I'm believing in God's faithfulness. The Jews had all the promises and oracles of God. Yet they're extremely unfaithful in, in, in their process with God. Because I think many times they looked at God and the things that was happening in their life and they say, well, it has to be something that we're doing because God is, it seems like God is unfaithful to us. So what do I do? And what I do most of the time in my life is I take things into my own hands. Yes, so God's faithfulness has diminished. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pack my family up. We're going to move from Bethel, the land as God has called me to. And I'm going to move my family to Egypt. (laughs) That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? I'm going to remove myself from the place that God has 
given me, and I'm going to take my family to Egypt. Well, what, is, what does Abraham do when he rolls up in Egypt? He rolls up in Egypt, but he forgets. He doesn't think that he has Sarah. Sarah, I mean, for a lack of better terms, Sarah is hot. She is beautiful. She is, I mean, she is beautiful because when he rolls up into Egypt, Pharaoh sees Sarah and Pharaoh says, boy, I have got to have her is what he says. And so he inquires through a servant to Abraham who she is. What does Abraham do? Abraham lies and says that, that his wife is his sister. And this is not even South Carolina. Isn't that amazing, right? Yes, this is Egypt. So, and I know, as South Carolinians, we can make those jokes, right? Yes. And, and so, you know, he lies. Can I tell you, all the men in the room, if you are married, planning to get married, contemplating get married, can I tell you, never short sell your wife to Pharaoh as being your sister. It will not go well in the future for you. It's just not going to happen. So he lies. He, In fact, he does it again later on in Genesis to King Abimelech. He does the very same thing and tells him that she is his sister. Why does he do that? Because fear. And what I realize in my life, in those moments when I think that somehow God is unfaithful to me because of my great unfaithfulness toward him, that it always results in me acting out in fear. That my faith becomes fear within my life. But it doesn't stop there with Abraham, does it? There's the infer- infertility issue with him, right? That, that what we realize that Sarah, can, she's barren. And so what does Sarah do? Oh, there's something wrong with me. And, and so maybe, you know, maybe she has this thought. Maybe it's because something has happened in my life that God is punishing me for that. He's unfaithful to me. So I'm going to help God out. So, hey, Abraham, come on over. Let me let you meet my maidservant, Hagar. She's an Egyptian, and I want you to meet her. So here's the plan. Can you imagine this conversation? It's an odd conversation to have. You're having it at dinner. Abraham, here's my servant, Hagar. What I want you to do is I want you to have relationships with her. And then from that relationship, you're going to have a child. And we're going to believe that that's the way that God is going to fulfill the promise. You know, pass the pot roast kind of deal, right? Yes, it has to be a really uncomfortable moment at the table. And when I begin to research this, what I realize in this culture, that is not, that is not completely immoral or that is not necessarily something that's very odd because when a woman was yet a barren, that she would find someone to be a surrogate for her. And, and that is what she said. Here's what they're doing. And I don't know if you've ever tried to help God out, but we try to help God out. Yes. Oh, God, evidently that I've done something wrong in life. So you are unfaithful to me in life. And so, Lord, let me help you out because maybe you need a little bit of help. And so from this union of Abraham and Hagar comes Ishmael. And from Ishmael comes 3,000 years of trouble. The word here is fear. The word here is great fear. Yes, that I've been unfaithful. I'm connecting all the wrong dots in my life. I don't know if you've ever done that or not. I'm correcting all the wrong dots in my life. 
because it seems that God has somehow been unfaithful to me because I have somehow been unfaithful to him. And so out of fear, what do I do? I take control. And we find through the book of Genesis that there are four moments in Abraham's life that he simply takes control out of fear and he takes things into his own hands. That when I believe that this is all on me, there is great fear in my life. And can I tell you today, and, I, and, and this is what Paul wants us to hear, that this is not on you. This is not on you, but this is on the cross, and this is on the faithfulness of our Savior today. Understand that, that there are going to be prom- moments in life when you're hanging on to a promise. There are going to be moments in your life that you're going to obey. There are going to be moments in your life that you're going to do what God has called you to do, and you feel that, and then you find yourself in, the, in that land of famine, and you're going to wonder, God, why are you unfaithful to me? God, is it something I have done within my life? And what I realize that I struggle with that in my life of seeing God unfaithful because of my faithlessness. And I struggle with that because I've made God into my own image. And so I'm simply saying God is treating me like I would treat anybody else in the world. And can I tell you, God works far beyond that. He does. So in the end, what happens to Abraham? He still becomes the father of a great nation, doesn't he? Yes. So maybe you're thinking, so here's the thing. Maybe I just do whatever I want to do because the end is it's all going to kind of work out for me, right? I don't have to really worry about this or stress over this a whole lot. Yeah, I'm not going to worry about this, about faithfulness stuff. I'm not going to worry about this promise stuff. I'm not going to worry about this law stuff and how it pushes me to God because in the end, it appears that it all simply works out. So I'm not going to worry about my actions. I'm not. And so Paul knows that you and I are going to think that way. So look what he says as we kind of tie all this up. Verse 5, he says this. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God. You say, Mark, what kind of language is that? Then what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us? I speak in a human way. He says, let me talk to you like man to man, woman to woman kind of thing. That by... No means for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds in his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. The question is this. God is sovereign. And yet I still our statement is this. God is sovereign. I still have a responsibility that God is sovereign, but I still have a responsibility Here is what God has done. What God has done in this text is this. He has taken the faithlessness of Israel. He has done that to simply show you and I his greater faithfulness is what he's done. Yes. You know, they saying if if it's all God's plan for salvation, then then what does it really mean in life? What does it really matter what I do? And how can God be mad at them if this really is his plan of salvation? Can I tell you? As we look at this text and we realize that God is so faithful to us, even in the middle of all of our unfaithfulness, can I say to you today that, that God is sovereign? Yes, he is sovereign, but he holds you and I accountable to our actions. That's what you need to hear. Paul is saying, hey, rest in the faithfulness of God. Yes, understand that. But God still holds us accountable for our actions. He's sovereign, but I'm still responsible. That he has this amazing plan 
And, and we, we make mistakes and we do crazy stuff in life. And yes, we're human and you and I are going to do that in life for sure. But then things work out in the end. And so what is our response? Our response many times is this. Well, I guess it was God's will, right? We say that. I guess this was God's will. And now I'm off the hook for this one. Abraham, hey, he still comes out in the end being the father of a great nation. But I'm responsible for my actions. Romans is a book about Christian living. Romans is a book about Christian living. And just because God is sovereign, it doesn't, it does not negate my responsibility. I think that's a powerful thought that we have to walk in today. It's not that this is about, this book is about how I take my faith in this moment. This book is about how I take this faith in the seat that I'm sitting in and I take it from the seat I'm sitting in to the situation of my life, to the situation of my relationships, to the situation of my job or my education. It's how I live out this. And what I realize is this. Yes, I rest in this amazing fact that God is faithful to me even when I am unfaithful. God has a sovereign plan for our lives, but I still have a responsibility for my actions. He is both the justifier and he is both just. That I'm saved by grace, but I am judged by my works. Man, how many, I don't, I guess we can say that every week because it's something that we have to really understand that I don't obey God out of fear through that, but I obey God out of love. And you can read the rest of the text, but when I get to verse 20, and this is where I end, it says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And this is about an active part of rejection an active rejection of God in my life. This is about me saying to God, you know, when I look at this, all of a sudden I realize, and I wrote in my notes this week, that this is not about atheism. This is not about atheism at all. This is not. This is, this is talking to you and I. This is talking to people that believe there is a God. This is talking about people who simply have the oracles of God. We've heard the word of God. Maybe you don't have it memorized. That's okay. I don't either. But we have those things within our life, yet we have these moments, these active rejections of God, where we say to God, I'm going to acknowledge you. I'm going to acknowledge you as God. I'm going to acknowledge your words, but I'm not going to put you in these places within my life. I know that you are able to do things far beyond my abilities. There's no limit to you. But yet I'm not going to allow you into these spaces of my life. And what I realize is this, that sin is far more a condition of my soul than it really is the actions of my hands. Because I think when we reduce it just to actions in our lives and not it being a condition of our soul, then I think we short sell the effect of sin in my life and your life. The law was given so that it would give us knowledge of our sinfulness. I wrote this week in my journal, for me, myself, that the beginning of becoming Christ-like, I think the beginning of becoming Christ-like is the realization of really how unchristlike I am. That it mirrors my sinfulness. But it mirrors my sinfulness. Here's the thought. 
it mirrors my sinfulness in the shadow of a Savior who covers my sinfulness. And that pushes me to him. So maybe you're thinking today, well, the condition and the situation I'm in this morning is because somehow that God is punishing me because of my unfaithfulness. And, and can I tell you, God is always faithful to you. Realize that. Remove that from your thought or your vocabulary, that God is always faithful to you. Can you understand that? That God is always faithful to you, even when you and I are continually unfaithful to him. He's always faithful. But don't mistake that faithfulness this morning for that of you have no responsibility for your actions. I love it. You see, the danger, the danger of sharing this with you today is for me to have stopped at verse 4. That's the danger. It'd be a great sermon, wouldn't it? For me to come in here and say, hey, here's the deal. No matter how unfaithful you are to God, that he's always going to be faithful to you. Truth, right? That's truth. But I have to balance that truth with the rest of what Paul is teaching us. And that is that in the middle of the truth of God's faithfulness, in the middle of my unfaithfulness, I'm still responsible for the way I treat you and the way you treat me. And I'm still responsible for my actions. And I'm still responsible for those I harm around me. I'm still responsible for my thought life. I'm still responsible for my words. I knew, and I got to quit, but I knew that when we decided on Romans and when I really felt God was directing us to teach the Romans I knew that there were parts I would not want to talk about in there but what I realized is this if I give you just part of what he's saying to us I think you go away with a very one-sided relationship with God and when life does hit you in the face when Monday morning does come when those moments when you have obeyed God and you have done what God has asked you to do and you still find yourself in a tent in Bethel in the middle of a famine that you have a true understanding of God's nature and character and his great love for you and he does love us enough to be the loving father that holds us accountable for the things that we do in life. And that's the kind of father I want who loves me enough to say I will not leave you where you are on the journey, but I want to help you grow into the person I've designed you to become. So for a moment, of introspection within our lives. Could you just close your eyes and bow your heads, those of you in the room and those of you at church at home, just to cut out distractions around you for a moment. Because I want us today to celebrate God's faithfulness. And that is absolutely important. If we leave without doing that, we've missed a powerful part of what Romans is teaching us this morning. That it's an amazing picture of grace for us today. 
but also I want us to balance that with the understanding that we have a responsibility in life. That we live as God is sovereign and control over all things and all life is lived through his hands. But yet also we realize that there's man's responsibility, human responsibility. So Father, speak to us today. First of all, about that place that we're in this morning. God, where we are viewing what we perceive to be your unfaithfulness. God, we perceive that because we have simply made you in a human image. And and doing that, God, we have placed human emotions and actions with you. And what we realize is, God, you're far beyond that. You're far beyond that within our lives, Lord. That you are faithful to us even when we are unfaithful. That nothing diminishes your faithfulness to our lives. And in that faithfulness, God, you're faithful to forgive and you're faithful to show us grace. And you're faithful to show us mercy. And you're also faithful, God, to hold us accountable for our actions, Lord. Because you are the perfect Father. And so, God, we rest in that. We rest in the totality of who you are this morning. So, God, give us peace. God, help us to stop acting in fear and living in fear and always taking things into our own hands because we've somehow perceived that you are punishing us for all the wrong things that we have done in life. And God, help us to see you in the proper light of who you are and that you're not angry with us. That's not who you are. That this is not a punitive relationship that we have with you. But this is a perfect relationship on your part with us, your creation. And you will always be faithful to us, God. Always be faithful. And God, you will meet us where we are in our journey, in the struggle of our life. So thank you, Father. encourage you this week to read the chap- chapter 3 it's in, in its entirety sit in that for a while let God speak to you and challenge you commit that you need to commit to him repent of the things that you need to repent of see God in the light of who he really is he is faithful and he is just He is the perfect Father in our lives today.